Hey everybody, it's Mike Schellenberger for Public. On today's show, I interview two individuals who have a lot to say and have done a lot of thinking about the First Amendment. The first is Congressman Dan Bishop. Bishop is a member of the House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. I met him when I testified before Congress in early March with Matt Taibbi, and I was impressed by the thoughtfulness that he put into his questions. Congressman Bishop is a conservative Republican. We don't agree on a lot of issues, but he is a very careful person. He told me when we met afterwards that he had stayed up late and read the entire 70 or so pages of my testimony the night before, staying up late. Very uh, conscientious thinker and somebody who I've come to respect, um, particularly on the First Amendment issue. And in our talk, you'll see he references a new report that was just published yesterday, July 10th, on the FBI's collaboration with a compromised Ukrainian intelligence agency to censor American speech. I didn't quite understand what he was talking about on the podcast, but it's this remarkable story that we're going to have more to say about. And I describe in today's uh, written article that accompanies this podcast about how the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, helped a Ukrainian intelligence entity demand censorship by the big social media companies of American citizens, even though that Ukrainian intelligence entity, we learned later, was actually compromised by the Russians. And so it's a fascinating case and a warning of what happens when you go down the road of censorship. You might actually end up spreading disinformation, and in this case, Russian disinformation. The second guest on today's show is Philip Hamburger, who is a really significant scholar on constitutional law and history. He is the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia University. He's also the founder of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, and that is a nonpartisan organization that is participating in the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit, particularly he's representing Three individuals who public has a lot of respect for, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Martin Kildorf at Harvard, and Aaron Cariotti, who was at University of California before he was forced to leave for his dissident views on COVID. Uh, Professor Hamburger had some really interesting insights about how to think about the First Amendment. We have a terrific talk. It's a special uh, episode of today's podcast because you get two speakers back to back, each offering a different view, a political view, and more of a historical and legal view of the First Amendment. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So keep listening. And here we go. Well, thank you, Congressman, so much for uh, speaking with me. It's nice to be able to see you after having such a strong statement in support of freedom of speech on the July 4th by uh, Judge Doty, and that felt like a good occasion for us to reconnect. We met uh, when I testified in front of Congress, in front of your committee, uh, the Weaponization Committee, on March 9th of this year, which I have to say was one of the most uh, viral things I've ever been involved in. A lot of people saw that, but you came up to me afterwards and said that you had stayed up late reading my very long testimony, and I appreciated <laughs> that. And you've been such a strong uh, person uh, for free speech. And I thought this would be a great chance for us to, to talk about everything that's occurred since then. Well, I'm happy to have the chance, Michael. And to that point, I mean, in a way, you know, you talked about the virality of coming in to testify in front of a congressional committee. 
And yet I've watched what you and others have done, starting with the, well, you know, and I, I was aware of you, Michael, uh, from San Francisco and other things that had happened and uh, in your uh, in your career. And but as the Twitter files thing emerged and I was just engrossed in it and maybe even before that was paying close attention to this litigation that you made reference to that Judge Doty's just entered the order uh, brought by attorneys general in Missouri and Louisiana that uh, I, you know, for me, I just watched you guys and you've been in a whirlwind. Now I saw recently you've been in London and so forth. And I can't really, you know, it's funny. uh, Everything gets reduced to partisanship these days. Yeah. And one of the things that's most interesting about all of this to me is the way in which, uh, I, I mean, it, it troubles me a great deal. And I'm, you know, I'm a partisan warrior in some ways in Washington, but this is not, this one is not partisan, should not be partisan. And Shouldn't all be. of the ground taken in favor of the First Amendment across our history, you know, certainly in the war in court was by liberals. And so it is, it is striking to me that, um, it seems to be reduced to partisanship, and I cannot think of anything more significant in terms of a career, yours or mine, of any kind, than to be an advocate for restoring the First Amendment to its to its uh, you know, long accepted meaning. Yeah, well, let's um, let's start let's start there a little bit. I mean, I I myself am shocked. You know, I'm uh, came from the left, I and from the radical left, really, but certainly free speech was something I had sort of taken for granted as something that the left cared about. Um, I had not been paying attention to the issue for a long time, focused on the environment, focused on drugs, crime, and homelessness. And I found myself very disoriented by the left's demand for greater censorship. And I'm curious if you could shed some light for our listeners in on your experience seeing that change um, and how you would describe that change over the last several decades. I know you've been in public life for a while, um, but you've seen what I've seen. And I'm curious if you share that sort of surprise or did it happen? Did it happen suddenly? Did it happen gradually? How would you describe this change, particularly on the left in terms of moving from being such, you know, demanding the right to be able to burn the American flag, the right for Nazis to mark through, march through Skokie, to, to, to demand that kids don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance because it violated their First Amendment rights. How would right. you see that change occurring um, on the left over the last several decades? Well, I would say, Michael, first, that the, one of the things that is most uh, intriguing to you know, one of the things you hear people talk about in politics, they would like for us to do things on a bipartisan basis. And it's interesting, yeah. this is a place in which I, I, I'm convinced that this is that we're, everybody's going to come to our senses and we're going to see this reassert itself somehow, because I believe that a lot of the things we end up doing on a bipartisan basis are trivial sort of, uh, you know, things to prove your middle of the road that don't actually do anything. This yeah. is something that matters and in which we could have just overwhelming consensus among left and right people who are genuinely principled people. Yeah, I don't know if I, in fact, one of the things that intrigues me, frankly, about you, about Matt Taibbi, about uh, who's a fellow for the Intercept, uh, Fang, uh, what's this? Fong, yeah, uh, Fong. Lee Fong. Lee Fong. Thank you for the pronunciation too, and and many others is that that you are of the left. I've been a conservative for my lifetime. You know, most of my lifetime. Um, I, I actually haven't been in government that long. I've been in Congress since 2019, and some a few years in the state legislature before that, but. 
I can't really account for what has happened to shift the left so fervently. Now, I also want to say, as long as let's be equal opportunity here, the roots of this federal government censorship thing, a lot of that comes from the Republican Party. Uh, provisions passed by uh, in, in, the, in the Senate in particular stuck into the National Defense Authorization Acts on a yearly basis, reacting to that intel community finding in 2017 that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election for the bent purpose of benefiting Donald Trump. A finding, by the way, in, that is very weird on its own if you dig into the details because the intelligence community was telling the House Intelligence Committee something completely opposite about the preference for Trump just mm. weeks before they issued that intelligence community assessment. So it seems wow. to also have sprung from there, but those roots are Republican. Uh, Republicans saw to it that those things were put into NDAAs largely. And so it, it's, but as far as the derivation or why this has come to pass on the left, I don't know, except that I think in the Obama era, there was a sort of a peace made with the, the, uh, the Intel stake. It was almost as though they realized they can't beat them. They might as well join them. And they, and, and Obama administration, a lot of power there are a lot of high level folks devoted themselves to seeing to it that if the Intel state was going to be doing things invasively, it might as well be done on behalf of the left. And then political advantage being what it is, people have just decided they like the power. And so they're for it. And look, I'm not trying to be holier than thou. That's what I worry about is that the, the insane political instinct exists on both ends of the political spectrum. But it is sort of shocking to me what people are prepared to give up on to abandon in terms of principles to, for political advantage. And I just, you know, we look at what is before us right now, the, what is laid out in Judge Doty's order, what you guys have described appropriately as a censorship industrial complex. It is breathtaking and something I never would have thought that I would see in America. Yeah. Well, I want to spend a couple more minutes on this, on our story about how we think we got here, because I think there's a part of it that is, I mean, the way we sort of tell it is, you know, there was, we had a very successful war on terrorism. You had a kind of um, bureaucracy set up that had been fighting uh, so-called disinformation, particularly around ISIS that came right out of the success that we were having. And then came the revolutions of 2016. And it was really Brexit and Trump that just absolutely sent the elites into a panic. Now, I had seen a previous panic from progressives around the election of George W. Bush. So in some ways, mm -hmm. I was kind of like, well, it's very familiar. But I think that the difference was that exactly what you said was that that the that the elites, particularly, that really, I would say, like uniparty elites, meaning from both parties in the United States, were very worried that Trump was going to withdraw us from NATO, and that there, what you start to see these intelligence security types, including the folks that got the FBI to start the investigation of Trump, including the people that signed this letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop looked like Russian disinformation including many of the people that I that we documented in the censorship industrial complex. Um, 
you know, and that was a, that in some ways that that explains a lot. I don't think it explains everything. Um, but that really like that's when the left really did change its position on censorship. It just decided that Trump was an existential danger to Western civilization and the American Republic and democracy. And that really, by all means, necessary. And they kind of embraced a Ruth, like a kind of, a, you know, an unprincipled uh, ruthlessness when it came to, you know, you know, accusing the president of being basically a, a puppet of Putin and um, demanding this crazy three year long witch hunt. Um, and then, um, you know, and then you kind of get to, uh, you know, 2020 um, and all the events. And basically the left has just got itself convinced and it's like, I mean, the part of it for us on, I think that come from the left, that's so crazy and disorienting about it is that it just feels like everybody on the left has just forgotten all the arguments that we used to make for the need to protect unpopular speech. You know, we were, I mean, the left was defending neo-Nazis right to march through Skogie. Like right. that wasn't because the left liked neo-Nazis. You've made two references to that. And, you know, for me and for many, perhaps, who are in the same position, one of the things that is orienting is I'm a lawyer. And although I was not a constitutional lawyer, I did business litigation for clients pretty for 30 years. But I do have that, you know, that, that core that I picked up in law school. And then as a matter of interest, it followed across time. And I've sort of dug in on the, on the First Amendment law in the last few years as all this has been going on, you've mentioned the Skokie, Illinois case about where I think it was the ACLU brought the case to, or, you know, or represented the KKK about there and, and established in the United States Supreme Court, as best I recall, that the ability, you know, they had a right to march and, and express themselves in Skokie, Illinois. So it's part of what I, my very basic, as of some, not a spring chicken anymore, my very basic education about the First Amendment. There's another one I'd like to mention to you that uh, I discovered. I did not know about it, but again, it, was, it goes to this left-right thing. There's actually a case from 1965 from the United States Supreme Court called Lamont versus Postmaster General. And that one was brought by an American communist, uh, so far certainly on the left end of the spectrum, that, and it established that even as to foreign propaganda, uh, communist uh, propaganda from abroad, that the, the United States Postal Service could not uh, send a card when something like you know, propaganda came through the mails addressed to an American citizen, the uh, Postmaster General could not send out a card and make that uh, addressee, write you know, ad, you know, send in a card saying you only get your propaganda if you put a card in saying that you want it. In other words, to have to identify yourself, you're, you have a right to you have a First Amendment right to receive foreign propaganda. So when you hear all this about foreign malign influence, now there are some things that are regulated through the foreign uh, uh, the FARA Foreign Agents Registration Act, and there's and that's very intricate to understand how that works. But this notion that the United States government can just block stuff, even if it's foreign propaganda, is at odds with what they decided in 1965. I mean, and how much water's under the bridge since then? So that was a, that was also the left establishing these posts, these goalposts, or the 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 uh, the guardrails, if you will, about what the First Amendment would require the government to allow and prevent the government from interfering with. 
And, and when you see what Judge Doty has described and what we all seen the Twitter files reveal and what is going on regularly, this massive security state, look, is it, here's what, it's revolutionary in, in its nature, Michael. What it reflects is, for political reasons, what you described as people, if it was a, an, an anti-Trump thing, that Trump is such a deemed threat that they would throw out our system of governance. That's really what it amounts to. Because they're saying we're going to turn or turn over, you know, turn ourselves into an, a police state in effect on speech, and there are people now. I mean, all these organizations, what the, you know, I call it the the censorship laundering enterprise. You call it the your your term is going to stick because you got a bigger uh, uh, bullhorn than I do. But uh, the censorship uh, uh, industrial complex, all these. Uh, academic based that's a, that's the most amazing thing of all all this that's a, that's based in academic institutions uh, staffed with people who are former Intel state employees and maybe now I was just reading something to to raise the question whether there are confidential human sources of the FBI or undercover FBI workers uh, in, uh, agents working for the social media companies so who knows but we do see this revolving door, and then the le- the left, the academic left, uh, jumps on board and becomes the mainstay of the the operating facility, the cutout for the intel state. It's astonishing to me. And so I don't want you to have to get. In. I, I want to talk about Congress and how what it's like there. And I don't want you to have to. I know that you need to maintain collegial relations. So I'm not asking for you to sort of describe anybody. Um, and I wouldn't want you to do, certainly to, to say anything that would um, undermine being able to have collegial relations with people. But I mean, you know, there's definitely, I mean, I mean, it's sort of related to another question I had, which was, you know, to what extent is this incredible animosity between Republicans and Democrats that we see when we testify or when we see on C-SPAN, how much of that is performative and how much of it is real? And I'm assuming the the answer is probably that it depends, but particularly on this free speech and censorship issue. And and that gets to the bigger question, which is like, do you have Democrats who you talk to who are just kind of like privately, hey, no, we get it. You know, this is crazy. We should not be doing this. Or is it just as bad in the cloakroom, so to speak, as it is in public? So in general, uh, I will tell you that my experience is that I sense a genuine, deep level of animosity from a lot of the left, a lot of the Democratic caucus. Um, I sense, for example, well, I probably shouldn't pick out names. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but I am gonna draw an exception that goes sort of the other way, which is surprising a little bit. Uh, Adam Schiff, uh, not not any deep conversations, but Adam Schiff. There's no harder partisan warrior than Adam Schiff, but I found him in conversations on the subway train or in the elevator to be extremely pleasant. Um, There are other Democrats who uh, I just don't get that from, uh, and a a lot of them don't get that from at all. Then there is, there is a crowd of moderate Democrats who are quite engaging across the board. Uh, I don't know how to distinguish. I will tell you that, uh, you know, I imagine that I am, Problem. I'm in House Freedom Caucus. I'm a conser- a, a, a genuine conservative, more, more than conservative. Though. I think of these days, it's more like I just think I ought to be really honest with people, and I think we ought to fix big problems. I don't think we ought to just let them sit there and, and stew in the status quo. So I rub some people the wrong way that way, 
and I give as good as I, as I get when we're in, uh, you know, in, uh, going toe to toe in the Judiciary Committee or Homeland Security. Um, I, uh, I will say that I don't, I don't have personal animosity for the members on the other side, and yet I sense that it is that I that I'm receiving it back in droves. Um, I don't know whether there are. I don't know other members on on my side of the aisle that I think. In fact, I think even Jim. Look at Jim Jordan. He's a good example. That's a guy who fights it out on issues all the time. But you can just tell if you listen carefully. Jim does not have hostility or enmity for people that he, even the ones he disagrees with, you can just, you can just see it. Uh, I, I will pick out one person because with this weaponization subcommittee or subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government that Jim also chairs as, as a subcommittee of the judiciary. That's the one you appeared before. And this, and, and the ranking member is, is a lady named Stacy Plaskett, who is the delegate for the Virgin Islands. I, I have been stunned at uh, what she's prepared to say. I, it, she took on uh, you guys that day in a way that it just seems to me, I, I don't know how anybody can get away with it uh, doing that without being politically destroyed by what she had to say. So is that performative or does she mean it? I don't know her well enough to know, but there are other members along the way who I think, I, I, I'm gonna give you another example as somebody's a really hard partisan warrior and he might have some sentiment in it. Uh, Daniel Goldman, he's he's really quite good too. He's a good, he's a very effective lawyer. Somehow, and I've had some interaction with him on Homeland Security. I I think um, I think uh, that that's that's not personal, but there's there is a lot of personal animosity. And what about on the specific content of the free speech issue? I mean, do you have do you have Democrats that ever that you kind of go to the Democrats privately and go, hey, you know. Um, you realize that you put in place the censorship apparatus and it could come back and bite the left and bite Democrats at some point. Um, or they kind of go, or you kind of go, look, this is not really, I mean, at some level, you must have some limits to this. I mean, what about on the specifics of the policy? You know, I, I, I don't know him well. Other people do. One person I approached because he, frankly, he stood out as one that was singled out in the Twitter files. Um, uh, Ro Khanna from California. I went up to him on the floor uh, right after, you know, as we began this Congress and said, uh, Ro, you don't know me well. I'm Dan Bishop. I said, I, uh, I'd love to work with you on this censorship thing because I appreciate what you had to say in private as shown in the Twitter files releases. And th- this, I hope you'll end up on this weaponization subcommittee. And it w- his answer was very perfunctory. He was like, uh, Okay, we'll see or something. And that was I never just not he didn't engage. Now, it would have been it could have been a bad moment, but I've never heard. I haven't heard of him really digging in on that in this Congress. Zoe Lofgren is another member who's extraordinarily smart, a member from California. Uh, She's just a wizard on a lot of issues, been in Congress a long time and at times in the past has been has wanted to get active and and work on a bipartisan way to rein in. uh, sort of overreaches by the administrative state of various types. And my understanding, albeit indirect, is that Zoe's not in the game these days. So uh, so she was involved in it in the past, you're saying? Yeah, yeah she's, she's had some thoughts on, I mean, for example, one of the things, and this is not maybe not exactly in the picture of, of uh, First Amendment, but, it, but uh, FISA reform. So we have 
FISA Section 702 reauthorization coming up. It's where they, you know, they can look at the uh, database of, of contacts collected uh, from far, uh, foreign foreigners uh, 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 outside the United States and so forth, in which you might incidentally have an American. And the FBI's routinely abused that database. And, uh, and, and that the authorization for that under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is coming up for renewal. And that's something Zoe had been engaged in before. My understanding is she's not really engaging because she just I don't want to work with Republicans at this point. So you think that that's coming from the fact that she doesn't want to work with Republicans or that she doesn't care about um, the surveillance concerns? I, I don't. I, I mean, given what she's had to say and the things she's worked on before, I have no reason to believe that she thinks the reason the basis for concern has evaporated or vanished or gone away. Uh, and I don't know what her reasons are, and it hasn't been the based on a firsthand contact. But let's say I, do, I see an absence of her of her being involved in the in the dialogue, number one. And number two, I've heard indirectly that she's just not uh, she's not engaging. She's not uh, responding to efforts to engage her. So, so the, I mean, so that really there's, there might be some performance, but really what we're seeing in the breakdown of any kind of conversation. Now, of course, there are things that do get passed in a bipartisan way. For example, the requirement that the president produce intelligence on COVID origins was bipartisan. I'm assuming there's just a lot of other work that Congress does that is bipartisan, but it is very, very striking that, I mean, that's sort of shocking the te- when I testified was just seeing Democrats basically saying there should be more censorship. And it feels like it's coming from, you know, we, we see, we sort of describe it as both an organic part of it that's coming right from them and from the people. And also part of it that's coming that's sort of inorganic, like we were describing coming from these different military and security agencies. And I wonder if you also think about this problem in a similar way, like what part of it is sort of organic coming from the culture and what part of it is coming from the top down? Yeah. Uh, you know, on the latter part, the top down thing, one of the things that I'm kind of mindful of in dealing in all of this is it, it, you can start feeling like you're paranoid or something. It, you know, you've got, I mean, for example, the IRS shows up at uh, Matt Taibbi's uh, home the day he's testifying before Congress. You know, you want to say, well, that was surely that was, I mean, that surely they wouldn't just because he's appearing to testify in a subcommittee here, they wouldn't show up, uh, send an IRS agent to it, but, but maybe they would. And, and that's just a small example. But when you talk about the size, the breadth, uh, the reach of the Intel state, uh, and I, when I say Intel State, I'm talking about not only our intelligence agencies, but also the State Department, the and for the DOD, and all of its money and research uh, funding that it has to go do things, and then the Department of Homeland Security, that big massive agency created after 9/11, and uh, we've seen the FBI, Foreign Influence Task Force, and all their activity. It it really, um, I think, and and then the other aspect I'd say that what I didn't know. Uh, and that's a lot to focus on, but what I really didn't have any feel for is the degree to which personnel revolve in and out uh, and, and how many FBI end up, you know, working in, in safety, what is it called? Whatever they call it at Twitter. Trust and safety. Yeah, trust and safety. <laughs> Euphemism. 
um, at uh, at Twitter or uh, all these other uh, organiza- uh, these other social media companies and ha- and as you say, the ones who are in private life who are resorted to the fifty one who signed the letter to say that the Hunter Biden laptop was had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation or Russian information operation. And these things, they all seem to work together and they, and they seem to operate as a, as a symbiotic network. And um, I just, that, that is very, it's almost disheartening to realize how big and deep it is. Uh, and I don't know exactly how we attack it. The other part about maybe the organic, I think is how you described it, development of this on the left. One thing that just, it just intrigues me because I don't know that I understand. I mean, I gave sort of a, an explanation, but I sort of have this conversation or many others. I, and I say what intrigues me is about you and about Taibi, and I keep waiting for it to grow or see what it, how it, because obviously some people are arriving at a conclusion. No, wait a minute. We've got, we've got to pause, push the pause button and reorient ourselves. This has gone wrong. And I, I'm curious, I'm curious whether, and I don't know if I'm here to ask, ask questions of you, but, but I'm curious what the, what somebody from the left sees and thinks, and does it change your, do you believe that the left needs to reform itself as the left was, or has it changed your outlook on fundamental principles and where does it go? I mean, I, is it, are these, do you see that the left has been changed? Maybe differing personnel have come in and they have differing objectives or has, you know, has this always been an undercurrent and is now sort of suddenly asserted itself? Well, you're, those are the questions that we're asking ourselves every day. I mean, literally every day we're asking ourselves exactly what you're asking in part because, you know, you have to focus. And so do you focus on sort of making the case in the culture and writing articles and podcasts and movies, just being like, look, you do not want to get rid of freedom of speech and freedom is good. And, and because you have to do that, or do you focus on really working with Congress and trying to find bipartisan allies and trying to change this? Or do you work through the courts? I just interviewed Philip Hamburger, who's the uh, attorney for the new Civil Liberties Alliance, which is representing, which represents Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kildorf, um, Aaron Cariotti in their lawsuit with the attorneys general. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's happening in the courts. And so I think this question of how do you focus and where should you focus is super important. I will say, I think that there's there's definitely there's days where I am. I am more creeped out definitely by the role of state military intelligence and security organizations, because traditionally that's where, you know, people start uh, real harm occurs. At the same time, there's also something easier about it because you can actually point your finger at an agency and I can say, please, we need to fire Jen Easterly from CISA. She's just got to go. She just oversaw a censorship regime. It's illegal. It's unethical. It's un-American. She needs to be fired and I will not rest until she's fired. Um, There's something easier about that than when we start to pull kind of peel the onion and we look at well what's driving people to demand censorship and there it's a it's dark and it has to do with things like rising narcissism the idea that i have a right i'm entitled since narcissism is really if you had to boil it down it's a sense of entitlement it's a sense of grandiosity and it's black and white thinking and so if you're suffering from that and the culture has fed narcissism for arguably 150 years or more, and certainly social media inflames it, you get a lot of 
people that one might see narcissism or other cluster B psychiatric or uh, psychological personalities um, involved in that. Because, you know, one of the things I've been really interested in, Congressman, is like the people that are engaged in the censorship refuse to talk about what they're doing publicly. They don't want to be, they don't want to debate. They want to be in very safe environments. They'll be on a panel at Aspen, you know, or at Davos, but they don't want to talk to us. We've put out 60, at least 60 or 70 interview requests at this point. We've had one response. Um, They're not interested. They do not feel like they should have to do it. They don't, they feel they're entitled to censor without any public scrutiny. They should do it secretly. Yeah. That's not... Like that's something wrong with you if you think that that's like there's something really creepy and entitled and wrong about that. So to to your point, Michael, right there, as I said when I was citing the examples of you, Taibbi, Fong, and there are others. In a way, it's funny because I, I, you know, um, I have a sense that, uh, and I don't know this because I haven't followed this closely enough to know, but. As I watched it in the committee that day, and I know about the the you know the the FTC. Uh, uh, Lena Khan's agency sent the request just for folks who may be viewing it, sent the request for, you know, all sorts of invasive information from Twitter. It's appearing to retaliate against you guys and, you know, asking for uh, direct uh, connections to the reporters who looked at what, trying to almost put you on the defensive about what you looked at in pursuing the Twitter file stories. But I I don't, I, I, I find myself intrigued by folks on the left coming forward in the way that you have. And I want that kind of dialogue in Congress. I want, um, you know, uh, Madeline Dean to look over and say, well, you, you know, you guys have been in support of, of uh, censorship too on your side. Here's how you did it. And frankly, as I said, I'm prepared to acknowledge that because it's a, it's a sickness, <laughs> whichever side of the political spectrum it is on. And it is yes. a loss of a value that has, uh, that is advanced humanity. And you see it happening in other nations all over the place that have less legal restrictions than here. We're relying very heavily at this point in time on one institution, the United States Supreme Court, to hold yes. that in place. And that's only a matter of time, by the way. I mean, until somebody, up yeah. in, you know, they've got ideas about upending the Supreme Court. I'm not trying to attack the left on that here. That's not my purpose. But, you know, whether it's by political uh you know, process over the course of time or a, a drastic quick uh, change. If, if the United States Supreme Court is the only thing holding that from that authoritarian regime from uh, descending completely, um, it, then it, it, you know, that worries me a great deal. I feel like we've got to have the engagement that you say, as you say, uh, it didn't come in my way. They're not talking across the political aisle. And what you're also saying is that they're not also not talking to independent reporters who you small hearty band who are prepared to raise these issues and seek honest dialogue over them. I'm here's a question I've got Michael if you don't mind my asking. Is the is the you know the 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 issue that you say you you were in before you got into this issue uh, uh homelessness and drug use in San Francisco uh, the the subject matter of San Francisco have you had a better success triggering a dialogue in the left in that in that uh, area than you are in this one. 
Yeah. Um, well, let me let me say something about the first thing first and then come to that. I mean, I think that um, I think the other interesting thing is you keep talking about the change on the right. I think the big effect, of course, is just that conservatives were disproportionately censored and they don't and people don't like being censored. And that sort of ends up um, it's you have a different I think Republicans have a different view of spying and censorship when it's directed at them than when it's directed at Muslims. <laughs> fair, fair. No, that's absolutely fair. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think that left wing and right wing authoritarianism are psychologically different. I'm just we just wrote a very short thing on this, but we're going to spend a lot more time on it. But it appears that right wing authoritarianism, which would include things like supporting the Patriot Act and supporting the kinds of restrictions on freedom that we saw under the George W. Bush administration, that that tends to be characterized by. Um, a strong sense of an out group, meaning like Muslims and foreigners, um, also driven by a kind of uh, a stronger desire for order than exists on the left. The left has has less need for orderliness and law and order. Um, and then but the left wing authoritarianism is really driven out of a kind of narcissistic belief that I it's my job to save these victims. They save these people. But the psychologist, and there's a big paper that just came out in March by Swiss, it's a very powerful empirical study by Swiss psychologists of left-wing authoritarianism, where they basically say it's really motivated by a desire for power and a desire for ego and, and whatnot on the left. So all of that, we won't name any names of anybody in Congress, but I think we can all think of examples of members of Congress on the left who, who like to really make a big show of how they're speaking for vulnerable people, for victims. And that's coming from, these psychologists argue, they say it's coming from narcissism, not from genuine altruism. And then to your question on San Francisco, it's, it actually segues perfectly into what, we were, what I was just saying, which is that this, like, because you have this question, which was the question I asked in writing the book, how do people that say they care more allow people suffering from schizophrenia and fentanyl addiction to let their legs rot on the street to the point they have to be amputated and then return those people back onto the street. And the the short answer is that they're caught in this absolutely terrible ideology that says that nothing should be coerced against people that are classified as victims. And if you have mental illness or drug addiction, you're a victim. Or if you're on the street, you're a victim, and therefore nothing should be required and only something given. The funny thing is, most people in San Francisco don't agree with that, like as of at a voting level. It's the ideology of a small group of elites who've captured the machinery of government um, and, and are abusing it. But 75% of San Franciscans surveyed in the most recent survey, and this is true, this number, by the way, this percentage is actually true almost everywhere in the United States. of of people think that if you are using drugs or defecating or sleeping on the street, you should be arrested and you should be mandated rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And that is the fundamental view of the majority. And then there's just a bunch of like, as you might imagine, just working in, in here, it's just that they've captured a bunch of institutions, the news media, the government, (laughs) the, you know, the political organizations, they've all been captured by these activists who hold the crazy wrong view of how you should treat people suffering from mental illness 
even though a majority of the people, even in the Democratic Party, disagree with that. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix Podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.